You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Welcome to PGAP. I'm Michael Bayliss, joined by Mark Allen. Mark, did I caffeinate you well enough for this episode? I think you have, yes. I could possibly do with another cup of tea, but maybe in half an hour. <laughs> How was Adelaide? Adelaide was great. It was really good to go. I really enjoyed it. It was fantastic. It's good to be back here in Albany, of course, but uh, lots of stories to tell about Adelaide in a future podcast, maybe. Indeed, whenever that might be. Whenever that might be. <laughs> One good news story. And I know we don't often share good news stories on this podcast. So as I was forming those words, it had like almost like a bitter feel that the... Good news. I kind of rolls off the tongue if you try hard enough. Good news. It's like learning a new language mm. with a whole different set of phonetics and linguistic mm. uh, rules. Yeah. My yeah. grandmother used to talk about that kind of thing. Back in her day, they used to have good news sometimes. Oh, innocent days. Mm. Innocent days, mm. yes. So last episode, we interviewed some... Um, WA community groups on PGAP, including uh, two guests who are fighting the East Link development through the Perth Hills. Now, I've heard through the grapevine, gossip, gossip, that they actually don't have the funding to build that road, uh, at least for the next four or five years. So that's one good news story. Perhaps the WA government has gone broke from building that bloody link road around Albany that they don't have anything left over, but still, still. Well, thank God WA isn't a sovereign wealth producer or else it could find the money. <laughs> but it relies on the federal government for, for some of its funding, so that's, that's its downfall. Well, isn't that just a beautiful segue into this episode? I thought so. Which is an episode full of segue and serendipity. It's a matter of all roads leading to Rome in this episode, or at least leading to, to back to Adelaide. Our guest is Gabrielle Bond, who's CEO of Modern Monetary Lab, based in Adelaide. Now, on... PGAP, we've talked about MMT several times. We were just talking a little bit earlier today about how all the pieces in the puzzle kind of uh, fit. So tell us a little bit about how you came across and were initially involved with Gabrielle and her work. Yes, that's right. So back in 2020, I was invited to give a Zoom presentation for sustainable prosperity in Adelaide. Now, this was on behalf of Town Planning Rebellion, which is a group that I co-founded. And for me back then, uh, because it was 2020, you know, doing a Zoom presentation was a very new and interesting thing to do. I'd never done one before, so Gabrielle... Um, we was... soon built up the skills on how to do Zoom oh, <laughs> during very, the very, early 2020s. It's very passe now, <laughs> Zoom. But back then it was very new and exciting. Mm. And Gabrielle was the person who initiated my first Zoom presentation, PowerPoint. But it all worked out quite well, but it was amazing. And I didn't know a lot about MMT then, but I knew a little bit about it. I tried to tie MMT into how a lot of what Town Planning Rebellion stands for can actually work when you look at the world through the lens of MMT. And that led me to get a present from Gabrielle as a thank you for doing this talk. I was given the Bible of MMT, which is the deficit myth by Stephanie Kelton, which I then lent to you. Which I read cover to cover. And I know that I've said this <laughs> numerous times over the four seasons of PGAP, but it was just one of those books where total concept of economics as I understood it, and look, I studied economics, I majored in it, but this just turned the whole concept on its head, like the idea that uh, taxes don't exist to fund welfare schemes or the NDIS. They exist to keep inflation lower. 
but the wool is so pulled over our eyes about how economic systems within the currency issuers such as Australia actually work. And I was at the Albany markets today and bumped into a couple of friends and tried to explain this to them. And I found it very tricky to explain um, because you're having to work against so many preconceptions that we have with with the MMT. But I read the book and it blew my mind and I've been a number one MMT groupie ever since. Yeah, reading the book, it's like going from being a flat earther to understanding that the earth is round. It's quite a major shift in perception and consciousness. But when you actually read about MMT, it makes a lot of sense. I think we live in a world and a society that doesn't encourage us to think too deeply about these things. We we hear the sound bites like, this is costing taxpayers money and we have a budget emergency. And because economics sounds complicated, we generally don't go down that rabbit hole. But the fact is, is that when you do go down the rabbit hole a bit and you, you look at it through the lens of MMT, you suddenly realise that we've been in denial of a, a massive reality. It's so crucial because in order to transition from this paradigm that we're in now to another paradigm based around a steady state or a degrowth society, without a lot of financial turmoil, that's possible through MMT. When you understand that actually money physically isn't the driving force, it's actually human ingenuity, resources, people on the ground, skills, capacity, all the qualities that make us human and all the, the great things that we've, we've accomplishments and the great technologies and knowledges that we have, that's what's crucial not physical money, because physical money is just mostly noughts on a screen. And then you realise that actually transitioning from this kind of Ponzi economy to something that's a degrowth or a steady state, it can be a pleasurable and joyful experience that will also help lead us away from the climate and ecological emergency. And this was such a great thing to read during the lockdown in Melbourne. And then soon after, um, when I escaped, <laughs> um, found myself uh, stuck in Adelaide for a while in 2021 and uh, had the fortune of hanging around some of Gabrielle's contemporaries, such as Economic Reform Australia, whose patron is Professor Philip Lorne, um, who Gabrielle does mention during the interview. MMT came up a lot and to the point where I was in the um, car of one of my colleagues who said that Stephanie Colton wrote some of the book in Adelaide and I did wonder if that was a bit of an urban legend but we fact-checked with Gabrielle in the interview and it was actually true so that's incredible. That's what I love about Adelaide it has all of these progressive streaks running through it. It was the first city in the so-called developed world or western world or whatever you want to call it, to give women the vote. And it was uh, the place where the deficit myth was partly written and so many other great things about Adelaide as well. You could get cash for cans in South Australia. But... You could get cash for cans 40 years before they did it in Melbourne and now Dad Andrews is like excited that you could get cash for cans in Melbourne and Adelaide people are going like, we've been doing this for 40 years, you do know that, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but there's um, a lot to say that's great about Adelaide and uh, Gabrielle Bond, our next guest, is... Uh, one of those great things. She certainly is. Looking forward to this one. Hello, Gabrielle Bond. Welcome to PGAP. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Been looking forward to this chat. And like any conversation, we always ask about what's the weather like. So I've heard it's a tad warm in Adelaide. Yes, it's quite warm in Adelaide. It's been very hot the last two days and today is a bit nicer. We're looking at another hot weekend, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because 
Uh, we're planning to do some activism around the tour down under, trying to ask the tour and, and events SA to drop their sponsorship from Santos, which is something uh, you've probably been aware of. A lot of fossil fuel companies are trying to launder their image through sponsoring things like arts festivals and sporting teams and various other projects. And we're trying to call that out for what it is. So a little bit uncomfortable getting out there and doing it, but at least you've got a backing from the weather system why people <laughs> need to paint. It's like, look, it's hot. The Australian Conservation uh, Council put out a report that people might be interested in, I think it was in 2020, called Vicious Cycle, and it's about cycling and how the heat extremes caused by climate change are going to make it really hard for events like the Tour Down Under uh, in Australia and in other places, you know, they have sports which rely on there being snow and snow, as you can see, is a thing that may not be a, be around when people expect it to be. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit fraught. Definitely. Now, I should mention that this is the first episode in which uh, my co-host, Mark Allen, who's sitting next to me, is debut in the interview process. Thank you for being a debut with us, Gabby. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Mark, hi. I remember you from, uh, you run a, a Facebook group which has a lot of interesting stuff called Town Planning Rebellion, which is a title that I absolutely love. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a passion of mine, getting town planning issues into the mainstream narrative about the environment. And uh, thank you for all of your support. You also invited me to give a, a talk in Adelaide, well, via Zoom, uh, a couple That's of years right. ago about town planning rebellion. And that yeah. was really enjoyable. And it was a really good opportunity for me to put a PowerPoint together, something I've been putting off for a long time. So thank you. Gabrielle, tell us a little about yourself, the summary of your work and activism, your passions and what drives you. Sure. Acting on the climate crisis is what drives me. Um, I'm lucky enough to be an activist in my day job, which is a great privilege and it really dr does drive me to work quite hard, I think, and um, feel that it's really necessary to go the extra mile and get up every day and be productive. When I finished school and went to university. I studied classical music at the Conservatorium in Adelaide. And I was a music teacher and a part-time musician, I guess, for quite a few years. I got, I guess, a bit of a wake-up call about the climate crisis when I listened to an interview uh, with James Hansen from, from NASA. He was being interviewed by Philip Adams on Late Night Live. And hearing this when I didn't really know much about the climate crisis at all um, was really shocking to me. And I actually remember I pulled the car over and my, my jaw dropped at what I was hearing. And after that, my life began to move in a different direction. I got talking to somebody at uh, a Greens um, when it was an, a state election in Adelaide and I talked to somebody at a polling booth and I got uh, involved in the Greens. I started doing a lot of volunteer work and some paid work for them. I got uh, my very first paid job in the environment sector was at the Environmental Defenders Office. Now it's a nationwide community legal service and uh, legal organisation that uh, protects the environment using the law. So they've done a whole lot of cases about um, coal mine approvals being inappropriate. They've represented the Tiwi Islanders. They've done amazing, amazing things. So I've been uh, involved in that job for over 10 years. Um, I was uh, an administrator with the Environmental Defenders Office in South Australia. Some of the other jobs I've worked in, I've worked for the Conservation Council in South Australia. I've worked for um, the South Australian Council of Social Service, so a little bit uh, more to do with social welfare. And yeah, I've just moved around from various different jobs. It's usually uh, those types of admin jobs are part-time, so you can often combine one or two or three <laughs> together. At the moment, my full-time work is with a charity which we set up called Modern Money Lab. And that is um, very much about progressive economics and a new online master's course that we have developed and we've started teaching through Torrens University. So I um, would love to talk to you more about that too as we go along. 
Fantastic. What a broad diversity of experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark and I both do music as well, so it's uh, nice that we've all got some (laughs) musical backgrounds. Now, you are based in Adelaide. Yes. Now, God, two years ago now, um, I was living in Adelaide, which is reflected on PGAP. Um, We did interviews with Economic Reform Australia, got a couple of ex-Democrat uh, politicians who understand limits to growth, uh, one of whom put an ad in The Australian in 1971, I believe, with a bunch of academics all signing calling to limits to growth. Was which, that John Coulter? That was John Coulter. That was John Coulter, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, 50 years later, no one paid attention to that, and here we go, <laughs> saying the same things and fighting the same fights that... Uh, uh john was doing 50 years ago but there have been a lot of other game changes in adelaide that i've noticed over the years now someone was telling me this in the car so i'm one time in adelaide so i'm not sure if it's true um you can myth check myth bust me here but apparently stephanie kelton wrote some for seminar work deficit myth while staying in adelaide Again, please fact check me there. But do you think there's something specific to Adelaide that encourages more people to think outside the box per capita? Yes, I do. And that is not a myth. Stephanie Kelton did come to Adelaide to uh, be the keynote speaker at a conference that Stephen Hale and I organised in 2020. And she was here working on her book. And that was during that summer, the the very last um, few months before COVID came and changed, changed everything. She was in uh, Adelaide and we were privileged enough to have a kind of a sneak preview of what she was putting in her book at that time. That's fantastic. That's nice. better than the myth. That's actually more <laughs> yeah. exciting than the myth itself. <laughs> that really <laughs> happens, but on this yeah. occasion. And, and you were involved. You're part of the myth. On the side, there's a two-word answer to is there something special about Adelaide, and that is Stephen Hale. Stephen Hale is a massive powerhouse in the MMT world, and he's somebody who uh, is a really good communicator. Um, he gives lots and lots of talks. He's done lots of videos. He writes articles in the conversation. I think um, now there's so many more people who uh, have heard of MMT and who understand it. And that's partly thanks to his work. Obviously, um, there's other people that do this really well as well. Professor Bill Mitchell in Newcastle and Stephanie Kelton, obviously. When it comes to Adelaide, the real mover and shaker here is Stephen Hale. And I was lucky enough to meet Stephen through my work at GetUp. We became great friends and we've done a lot of really cool projects together. And this master's degree that we are currently um, teaching and organising, probably the the biggest and best of those projects. But another really fantastic project that we did was that conference, the Sustainable Prosperity Conference in Adelaide 2020. Through that conference, we have formed an action group called the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group. It's got hundreds of people who are supporters, probably a good 50 to 80 people that in Adelaide that would come along to our events and be involved. And, you know, another group of, say, 15 to 20 core volunteers who come to everything and help make things happen. And that group is still going strong. Um, You can find out uh, about what we are up to if you want to Google for this. It's uh, sustainable-prosperity.net.au. That's our website. Recently, we've done really fantastic report on the case for a job guarantee, which has come out of some uh, sort of participatory democracy type sessions that we held We held a whole weekend of uh, workshops and discussion on that that topic in April. We've also done some online meetings and some, we've reached out to people, to First Nations groups and artists and union leaders and a whole different um, um, cross-section of the community um, to talk to them about how we could make the case for a job guarantee and how it would benefit everyone. So that's a really interesting piece of work if you want to go and have a look at that. The Sustainable Prosperity Action Group really wouldn't have happened without Stephen. I think I'd also like to uh, give a mention to Phil Lawn, who's also a, a very uh, well-regarded economist. He's probably Australia's best ecological economist. 
and he was a very early adopter of MMT as well. And he and Stephen have worked together quite a lot. Wow, there's a lot going on in Adelaide. It's incredible when I was there, just just witnessing how many clever minds, game changers that there, there are per capita. And I'm not sure if it's something in the water or what, but... I don't know about the water. A lot of people think it tastes awful. I'm drinking it right now. <laughs> Last question for me for a while it was actually two or three years ago that I read The Deficit Myth. And like just about anyone else who reads it, I went through several stages of acquainting myself with modern monetary theory or MMT. And I think there almost need to be a hierarchy of stages when MMT, like you go through the initial disbelief and shock, uh, then having your whole understanding of the economic system turned onto its head. And I think there's a moment where the brain almost feels like it's going to explode and then the kind of why has everyone been lying to me all this time then before truly appreciating its full potential so i'm curious what your journey has been with mmt and whether it was similar or dissimilar to mine and probably good to also say it at this point um although you're a proponent of seeing the economic system through the lens of MMT, that you're not an academic on it with a PhD with a bunch of letters. That's right. No, I'm not an economist. Disclosure, disclosure. Yeah. I'm an activist and organiser. Early on, I was probably like most typical people who would consider themselves greenies or uh, environmentalists. I always thought about economics as something that was a right-wing issue and aligned pretty much with the interests of the wealthy part of society, Not didn't really have much overlap with things that I was working on and trying to achieve. I thought it would be pretty dry and not very relevant to me. And I definitely took for granted that the federal government operates in the same way as a household, that it has to find money by taxing people or borrowing it before it can spend. And I also bought into the idea that my taxes pay for this nice thing that we might have. And I think all of that got turned on its head when I first kind of encountered MMT. And that was really through GetUp had a fantastic economic fairness campaign, which, they, which I was part of uh, working on, which is called Future to Fight For. And that had a various platforms in it, one of which was a job guarantee. Stephen Hale had been asked by GetUp to contribute to, to writing that platform. Uh, and Phil Lawn explained how MMT is a, an accurate way of seeing how the financial system really works. So it did really have a big impact on me. And a, a lot of things that perhaps didn't make sense before started to make more sense. So for example, at the same time as thinking that the federal government has to find money before it can spend, there's always been that, that kind of thing in the back of your mind where, well, they just spent such and such billion on new submarines or defence systems or giving away tax concessions to the wealthy or bailing out the banks and things like that. So there's always that contradiction there. Um, so MMT really helps to explain how that functions. Nice. Over to you, Mark. Yeah, do you think there's a deliberate sort of policy of people keeping people in the dark? Because when you fully understand MMT or you or as you say, look look through the lens of MMT when you look at our economic system and you see the reality of the situation, and yet so many people don't get it. And a lot of high profile people in, in, in the environment movement, the, the Greens will continue to say, you know, we need to raise taxes, tax the billionaires that do need to tax the billionaires, but we don't need to tax them to fund repairing the climate and ecological crisis. Do you think that there is a deliberate policy, yeah, to keep people in the dark, whether or not it's, it's sort of cloak and dagger kind of thing, or do you think it's just a lot of politicians don't get it either? I think it's actually 90% just ignorance and perhaps 10% malice is my answer to that. I think it's complicated. There are definitely vested interests that will mislead us deliberately. But I think like 
our political leaders also have this real misconception about what's possible. Like, for example, in the US, you can you, you hear about them talking about the debt ceiling, which is a completely manufactured thing, but it's stopping the Green New Deal from being implemented because they can't think their way around this false and unnecessary barrier to spending on what needs to be fixed. And in the UK, the NHS is falling apart as we speak, and the Labor Party is not prepared to agree that it can be fixed by spending where it's needed. The Australian Labor Party will still not raise the rate of welfare. They say we can't afford it. Even the Greens say we need to tax billionaires to pay for mental health and denticare, which you mentioned before. Although I think with the Greens, like I would argue that they do actually understand it fine. Um, they've had plenty of advice and I know that their leadership definitely understands how the financial system really works. They're not idiots, um, but there is a lot of votes to be gained by, I guess, drawing on the of unfairness that people see, uh, feel when they say, when they see that the mental health and denticare are not funded. And meanwhile, Clive Palmer and Gina Reinhart get a huge tax break. And I think it's so tempting to put those two things together as a kind of story about why the Greens should be um, elected. And I don't, I mean, it's, it's really hard because I don't think it's fair that they actually perpetuate the myth, um, but I can understand why it's a good political narrative for them to use. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense because with political parties, it's all about the story. It's all about the emotion, getting people to change their votes and to yeah. completely change the narrative to MMT, they'll get a lot of kickback and it will be a, a harder hill to climb possibly. It's very hard for people to change their views publicly. Like if you think about the people who are the top advisors economically to the Labor Party, you know, people like Stephen Kakoulas, Richard Holden, Andrew Lee, um, you know, Andrew Lee is a wonderful progressive politician, but he's so invested in describing things a certain way and thinking about things a certain way that even if underneath all of that, he did question whether what he's been taught his whole life and he's done his PhD on is actually correct. Uh, it would be really hard for him to then go out and publicly say, actually, I was wrong. I want to change my views. Um, I think that would be really hard. And so I think people's the way people's minds work, it's very difficult for them to change their minds, even when the evidence is clear. And the evidence is clear. I mean, the spending when we when COVID came and the Morrison government um, magically found the money to keep us, well, to, to a greater or lesser degree from disaster during COVID. They didn't have to tax us before they paid that money. They didn't have to borrow it. In fact, they couldn't have borrowed it. The money that they would have needed to borrow was not available. Like if you actually look at the figures, I think only maybe an, a small percentage of it was actually available and ready to be borrowed at that time. It was basically spent into existence. They also um, found a way to give more money to Jerry Harvey without having to tax us either. So, right. you know. and, and that's it. I mean, MMT is, as you, you say, it's a lens because it's actually being used now. It's not that abstract idea out there that, oh, we could use MMT. That's right. So, I mean, if you look at the, the ultra conservative side of politics, uh, Donald Trump or Liz Truss, they actually understand it fine. It's just that they want the opposite outcomes than what we want. Bearing all of that in mind, for me, you know, the full potential of modern monetary theory is understanding that we can actually transition from our current sort of growth-based society to some form of post-growth model without having to endure all of the horror stories uh, that people say would happen if we move away from a growth-based society. They say there'd be massive poverty and all of this. And when you fully understand modern monetary theory, you actually realize that actually we can transition to a different kind of system quite comfortably. Yeah. And I know that you are, um, as you mentioned earlier, you are, you're the, actually the CEO of the Modern Money Lab. That's right. Who work with institutions, educational institutions to, to, to teach uh, MMT. 
And is that in, is that imbued within the education about systemic change, about how we can actually transition to some form of post-growth society? In a nutshell, what we're trying to do with our new master's degree, we are trying to explain uh, or teach students that um, currently econo- an economics education that you would get in a mainstream institution would, would treat money as finite and nature at limit as limitless and there to be kind of used and exploited. Perhaps this was more or less true, you know, 100 or 200 years ago, but now we can really obviously see that it's the other way around. So we need to urgently change our outlook to avoid ecological collapse. And part of what we're doing, I think, with the course is that we want to over time, we want to train a new generation of economists who are equipped to understand this better and solve the issues that we're facing. Uh, so there is a massive need for people with this knowledge. That's why we started We started the organisation Modern Money Lab as a charity. Um, that was in order so that we could form a partnership with Torrens University and uh, develop this online master's degree. And so the two pillars of the degree are MMT and ecological economics. Ecological economics teaches us what the kind of catastrophic dangers are that we're facing with our current trajectory of economic growth. And MMT teaches us about the financial tools that we have at our disposal to be able to do things differently. And I want to just go back to very quickly for those listening. So with the idea of limitless spending, I want to just point out that MMT actually doesn't say that you can spend an infinite amount of money with no consequences. There are consequences. But when you're thinking about what is what is possible, you always need to think about real resources, not dollars. The Australian government issues the Australian dollar. It can never run out of dollars, but it can run out of things like uh, arable farmland, trained doctors and psychologists, metals and alloys that we need for uh, for batteries things like that are real resources and you can run out of them so and and then obviously the 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 idea about inflation that's where a job guarantee comes in which i'm happy to talk about later as well i just wanted to reinforce that so the the idea that you can just spend whatever you like and uh, without having any consequences at all is not what we are saying and I think that's why people find it difficult to embrace MMT, I think, sometimes, because it does sound too good to be true. Yeah, with an understanding of the environment and limits to growth, that we can understand that it's a, that it's a limit to the resource base. Yeah. If people want to look up an article by Jason Hickel, the article explains it much better than I could. The article is, or the paper is called MMT and degrowth, a thought experiment. And it really sets out how it, on the surface, it might seem that MMT is incompatible with degrowth, but actually the two things are not incompatible at all and perhaps need each other. Yeah. And and to actually go back into what you were saying, that it really is, you know, it's about the resources and the knowledge and the people and possibly the technology to make things happen. I'm putting together a political comedy with someone else at the Adelaide Fringe. And I'm trying to create this analogy where we have all these people on the ground ready to heal the land. They've got the time, they've got the tools, they've got the technology, they're all ready to go, but they're waiting for these digits to, to be moved from one screen to another. It's like, we're ready to go, but hang on a minute, we need that naught from that billionaire screen to be moved to this screen in order for us to do it. But apart from that, we've, we're ready. We can't do anything because this naught is on the wrong screen. It's, it's, it's really that farcical, really, isn't it? When, when you actually do have all of the resources and the people there and everything in place. Yeah, look, I, I think that's actually pretty close to the truth, <laughs> unfortunately. I really look, look forward to seeing that show. It sounds really good. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, certainly going to be an interesting project for me. One of those midlife crisis sort of things. It's like I haven't done a comedy show in the Adelaide Fringe before, so I better better do that now. <laughs> so, I've listened to another interview of yours recently, and you said that in some ways 
understanding modern monetary theory has made you less angry, certainly when taxpayers' dollars are sometimes wasted on something like a submarine contract or something, and you think, oh, it's really bad that public money is being wasted. But at least I now know that's not public money that would otherwise be spent on a nurse or a doctor, because that's not the way it, it works. But I also find in some ways that understanding modern monetary theory makes me angry. Yeah. It makes me more angry in ways when you realise how, for example, the Howard government used the budget emergency as a way of winning elections and how the, the population has been manipulated somewhat, I feel, into neoliberalism and um, what's the term they use um, uh, in England? Austerity. Austerity. How they justify austerity, cutting services, using that. Does that gripe with you as well as a kind of a counterbalance to the, the less anger you have regarding other issues? Look, yeah, I think the misrepresentation of MMT is, um, like I said before, I think it is mostly ignorance. But what does make me angry is that you see politicians in both the big parties uh, that seem to be quite happy with things the way they are. The idea that we can carry on digging up coal, fracking for gas, destroying forests and biodiversity, keeping unemployed people in poverty, continuing to funnel wealth upwards and letting inequality just get wider and wider. And that does make me angry because Inequality was was at its lowest when I was born in 1974, 1975. It's now gotten as bad as it was in the 1920s. So we're not really even having that conversation. You know, um, how much inequality can we accept? Absolutely. It's interesting also, you, you talk about um, Australia and, and, and certainly in, in the global north, certainly you see in the Anglosphere countries how inequality is massively increasing. Yeah. When you look at a country like Japan, it's an interesting situation that's going on there because their their population is actually starting to, to shrink, to decline. Yeah. And I noticed recently there was a headline in the in the paper stating that they're actually paying occupants of Tokyo to move into rural and regional areas of Japan where depopulation is happening because Tokyo oh one of the largest cities in the world, if not the largest city in the world. So Japan's now able to take the pressure off Tokyo and do things, you know, we certainly in Australia, we're not in a position to, to encourage people to move out of Sydney and Melbourne so easily. So I know that Japan is not without its problems, but do you think that the world can learn from Japan's experience about how we can create a world where both population and consumption can stabilise and even start to reduce without the world falling in. I suppose another example is that you don't necessarily need to do the expansive stuff like keep building new constructions and housing. Yeah. Like You can yeah. have an economy based on repair of existing houses, planting trees instead, which is not indicative of those industries of a growing GDP. Yeah, that's right. For a start, GDP is the wrong measure. But if you think about, you know, if you think about growth and we're kind of on this on this treadmill of 3% growth per annum forever, otherwise a whole lot of things will stop working as we need them to work in the current system. You know, if you project that out into the future, if you think about what happens maybe 100, 200 years from now, if we keep growing for 3% every year, we'll end up with an economy that's a thousand times as big. Now, does anybody even think that's possible or desirable? <laughs> you know, at some point, we've got to turn that curve down again without putting more people into poverty and without, you know, taking away what they need to have a good and, and productive life. So I think, what, you know, when we talk about degrowth or steady state economy, like you said, we need to remember that some things will need to grow and grow massively. Renewable energy, like recycling, sustainable farming, public transport, infrastructure for cycling, aged care, health care, education, all these things um, you could argue are things that need to keep growing to meet the needs of the people that are here. 
we know there's always meaningful work in those fields that needs doing. So the one prescriptive side of MMT that people do talk about as um, not just kind of a lens, but as something that you should could and should implement is uh, implementing a job guarantee so that everybody who want, is unemployed or wants more work than they currently have, that there's always work for people to do and that it's a matter of organising so that people who want more work can do this work that benefits everybody. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. We need to, obviously, we need to shrink consumption that is, is kind of like, you know, your excess consumption, pollution, carbon pollution, and the, the kind of steady um, torrent of wealth trickling upwards. I think those, those things are really important. I think it's common sense to most people, but it's really hard politically to get that message across again, because of vested interests and in most sort of countries, the political process you could argue has become, you know, warped or corrupted and the, the warped view of where we think of as the political center is, is something that I think is when you talk about the center in the media, that is definitely uh, business as usual and growth as usual. And I think that's really important to change. Absolutely. I noticed an article on the ABC today that said that parts of our way out of the housing crisis in Australia is to build more houses and to actually reduce planning laws, weaken planning laws. Mm, yeah. And that's, that's disingenuous. That's pulling mm. the wool over our eyes. We yeah. do need to build more houses, but unless it's public housing, under the current system, building more houses is not going to get us out of the housing crisis because a whole growth-based system depends upon house prices remaining high and in keeping yeah. that high because yep. so many people have investments in property and that's on the ABC and there was mm -hmm. there was nothing in that article to actually challenge that narrative and say okay yep. yes maybe we do need to change planning laws but that's to create inclusion rezoning so that we have more public housing and we also need to understand that if we're going to build more houses to build our way out of this we have to understand that we have to start looking at the demand side and working towards a stabilization of our population over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, housing's not something I know a lot about, I've got to say. Um, but yeah, definitely agree with what what you were saying about the planning laws. I think planning is, is a really difficult issue. And I'm glad that there are people thinking about it and working on it. Um, it's something that I haven't really got my head around as a renter <laughs> and somebody who is not likely to be able to own a home in in, in the near future, if ever. <laughs> you know, someone said, because I'm actually doing an article on the housing crisis, and there's a couple of things that jumped out at me. When you combine all federal, state and local politicians who have investment housing, you're talking about over a thousand people. So, you know, that's why the cost of housing isn't likely to come down yeah, or we're going yeah. to get rid of negative gearing. Yeah. Also, someone explained um, Australia as a housing market with an economy attached to it. <laughs> Look, we're on the home stretch now. Your answers to MMT and uh, what you're doing about it with Modern Monetary Lab being absolutely fantastic. I'm going to end with one of my vague wishy-washy uh, social work questions, <laughs> which is we always like to ask guests their personal vision uh, of a day in the life of a post-growth future if everything went the guest's way. <laughs> so what might the post-growth future look like to you, a day in the life, if everything went your way? Well, I think if I didn't need to take part in the work that I'm doing now, because, for example, if we understood economics as ecological economics, all economics should be ecological economics. And if everybody just did that in every university, then I wouldn't need to be doing what I'm doing now. Um, I could go back to teaching violin and playing in orchestras um, and having a very nice uh, life without the, the anxiety and grief that comes from being involved and understanding the climate crisis. I wouldn't need to take part in civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action, which as a, I guess, a more introverted person, I actually find really challenging and sometimes scary, but I think it's necessary. Um, so I'm not going to be stopping doing that anytime soon. <laughs> 
um, one thing that I always like to come back to, there's a really short but very beautiful video. If you look for on YouTube, it's a message from the future. It comes from The Intercept and it's narrated by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And that is, it's just beautifully done. It has the most lovely artwork and animation and it really just sets out how uh, our world could look if we just had the will and um, the inspiration to do that. So please go have a look at that. that. That's what I come back to when I need to remind myself what we're, what we're striving for. And we are having in Adelaide on the 11th and 12th of February this year, we're having a weekend workshop titled Rethinking Capital Capitalism. And that is, we've done this many times actually, we've toured this workshop um, around, we've been to Melbourne, Hobart, Sydney and Brisbane already. And we're back in Adelaide. We did three workshops on rethinking capitalism in 2021 and we're back for the beginning of 2023. It gives people a taste of what we're talking about in our master's degree. It includes obviously MMT. It talks about donut economics, inequality, um, work, climate change, global trade, um, and there's some really important sessions also on state capture, which is something that um, we've been learning a lot about and working on. And also we want to talk more about framing and how we can we communicate our ideas to the rest of the world. And so it will be really useful for people if they don't know much about economics, it will help you understand how you can respond when you when you encounter these myths and how you can help change people's minds. Nice. How did the one in Brisbane go recently? Oh yeah, that was very good. Thank you. Yeah, we had it at Torrens University campus. Um, we had um, some really interesting, fascinating people. Yeah, it was, um, it was a great weekend. And links to everything that you've said in the show notes. So there's uh, no excuse not to link on and taking part. Um, <laughs> Also well done, as um, I'm coming from a fellow introvert, uh, you're taking part in Extinction Rebellion. I remember telling someone once that uh, Extinction Rebellion makes introverts do extraordinary things. <laughs> Is there anything else that you'd like to say that you feel we haven't covered yet before we say our goodbyes? I'll mention just quickly um, our two websites, Modern Money Lab, www.modernmoneylab.org.au and Sustainable Prosperity Action Group for the, the group of activists in Adelaide is um, www.sustainable-prosperity.net.au and you'll find lots of interesting stuff on those two sites. But please get in touch, especially if you're interested in studying at a post-grad level. Um, we would love to talk to you and we'll make uh, a time for you to talk to Stephen and myself and anybody who, yeah, anybody who's just in, interested can email us or drop us a line somehow. Check it out. Well, Gabriel, thank you so much. Um, we can't accuse you of being lazy and idle. I've been very <laughs> impressed um, and getting to learn more, a little bit more about you. Um, yeah. And today, Mark said fantastic things about you. Love your work and thank you for doing what you're doing. It's really crucially important work that you're doing. So we really appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's been terrific. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast and thank you very much, Mark, for your first ever interview on PGAP as co-host. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it and hopefully there'll be many more opportunities. Now, Gabriel has um, asked me just to share a couple of qualifiers. Now, on the links... Gabriel has provided us some academic material on MMT, including a link between how MMT and degrowth can coexist and actually even help each other, which is great. As Gabriel is not an academic or economist herself, let's see this interview as shining the light on further reading 
on academically written material on this very crucial subject. Exactly. Yes. The, the other thing that she has cautioned during interview is not to see MMT as a discrete tool, but as a lens to understand. And yes, PGAP, sharing it around, how can people support the degrowth cause via PGAP? Yes, folks, we need to support the degrowth cause because if we don't degrowth, the world is in big trouble. So a really important subject. You can comment on this on this podcast and other podcasts you can share it it's available on all platforms easy to access please comment please review it please share it spread it around your friends let's keep the degrowth message going there are lots of other degrowth messages out there as well and i urge you to go out and look at those and there's heaps of great books on degrowth but we hope that this podcast is part of the bigger picture of building up this movement towards systemic change, towards a degrowth society. Does that get me a cup of tea? <laughs> that indeed gets you a cup of tea. Excellent. And Just black, thing. <laughs> and word of mouth is essential because we don't have the Murdoch Press or even Fairfax to sharing. We don't even have the Guardian. <laughs> Perish the thought. So, a little teaser for next episode. We're going to be <laughs> interviewing each other. <laughs> yes, it's going to be very... Very indulgent in the next episode. <laughs> but I argue that many of the podcasts out there are uh, in-house conversations. They are, that's true. Mm. We just have to be really witty and interesting. <laughs> like all the we other ones. We can't rely upon our guests to take the, take the strain. We have to do it all ourselves. I know, so it's all down to us too. But um, I'll be interviewing Mark on his uh, debut. Lots of debuts here for Mark. It's been a big year. Um, his show in Adelaide, The Boomer and the Doomer. Yes, my attempt at political comedy to try and spread the degrowth message to new audiences. And what With mixed results. I've also done a pilot project. I've written, I think, the first paper in Australia that actually looks at the demand equation on the housing crisis. You have filled in a very important blind spot, or removed a blind spot, should I say, whatever <laughs> the term is. But no, you've yeah. done very important, very crucial work. I should look forward to interviewing you about that. Well, until then, Mark, until then. Until then. Until then, listener, until then.